Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from The Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. It's great to be joined by the film and theatre director, Joe Wright. Joe, thanks for coming in this afternoon. Thank you for thanks having for chatting me. to us. Yeah. I want to start right at the beginning, if that's okay, uh-huh. because I know that uh, your childhood was uh, a very theatrical childhood, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Uh, my parents uh, were puppeteers and... Um, uh, Dad had dad was born in 1906, um, and uh, and had started working making puppets in the 1940s, um, and then in 1959, bought a bomb site um, that had been a temperance hall in Islington where where Dickens and Cruikshank used to drink tea. Um, anyway, since uh, had become a ruin, uh, Dad bought it for I think 700 pounds. Uh, in 1959 and turned it into the first residential um, puppet theatre in England. Um, and and we grew up, there was the theatre and then the workshop and then the house, um, all connected by a little kind of back garden. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we grew up in this puppet theatre. Um, there were two shows... Um, on a Saturday and one show on a Sunday and school shows during the week. Um, Dad wrote the or adapted the shows, the plays, often kind of um, Oliver Goldsmith stories or Oscar Wilde stories or Hans Christian Andersen. Um, he'd have actors come and read the scripts um, uh, and then he would and, and tape those. Um, and then he would he would make the puppets um carve them out of wood um, he was a very fine wood carver um, and my mum would paint the puppets and, and costume them um, mum would design the scenery um, and they would um, put on these shows and it was all hands on deck wasn't it that you were there ripping tickets selling ice yeah. creams all of that kind of stuff yeah no absolutely I mean it was um, it was quite a hand to mouth existence um, and everyone was expected to get involved, really. If you didn't, then um, uh, then then you wouldn't get you know much um, uh, attention, really. I suppose. Um, so yeah, you would you'd sell biscuits behind the counter, <laughs> and you would show people to their seats, and any time uh, of day or night, people would call and um, the house or the theatre, and and book tickets um, and if you had a full booking book then there was chops on a Friday night <laughs> and um, and if you didn't then there weren't any chops um, uh, so it was it was uh, and then and then one of the best elements of it also was was traveling um, uh, we toured most summers for six weeks and we did amazing tours where we, we had two vans and we'd kind of drive across Europe to you know Germany and and uh, I think Poland and um, Greece uh, and France and Spain and and all over the place you know and then there were other tours that went further further afield to 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 China and America and so on. So what's the little angel shut during those those tours if you're yeah, all out on, yeah. on tour? Yeah, and the summer months were quite you know fallow for mm. indoor puppet theatre anyway. So um so so those were the times to to get on the road. And what about just after your childhood then, as a as a teenager? Did you study theatre 
at university? Did you? Well, throughout that period, mm. I was also, or th- from a, for, you know, throughout my childhood, I was also going to a place called Anshears, um, which was a drama workshop club um, in Islington, um, where I think I started going when I was like six, um, and uh, and stopped when I was eighteen. Um, and you'd pay 10 pence a lesson, you'd go after school and you'd pay 10 pence a lesson twice a week and do improvisation workshops. Um, and so I had a kind of love of acting as well. Um, and I, I thought I might become an actor for a while. Um, and I saw acting as a possible bridge to directing. Um, I knew I didn't want to be a puppeteer from quite an early age. I thought, I thought I'd be a... Um, a film director and of course you are a film director and lots of people uh, know you uh, from from your films as someone that directs across both mediums what do you think the, the, the similarities are or the differences are between directing a film or directing a piece of theatre well I mean there are lots of similarities firstly and most importantly um, both mediums are forms within which to tell stories and and the storm the story is the the primary focus of any endeavor be it theatrical or cinematic um uh, and then those stories are told with actors um dramatically and um and so one's work with actors and and development of um character and so on um uh, is obviously similar, um, but I I I started. I've I've just been editing a film uh, recently, um, and uh, and I and I had a hiatus from editing the film whilst I put on Galileo, and I went back and looked at the film, not having seen it for six weeks, and was kind of really surprised by this flat screen. Um, <laughs> uh, I I kind of you know, I, I was a bit surprised by the lack of people really um, up there. Uh, doing it um the, the theater is a kind of evolving thing um and and is always full of life um uh film you get to a point where you kind of pin it down um uh shave it cut it um shape it to within an inch of its um life and then it's fixed um and 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 that fixed thing will go on um and can be seen by future generations the beautiful thing about theater is that it is you know um never fixed and um and once the show has finished it lives in your imaginations or nowhere um and that's a uh, so you find that quite magical you find that more magical than frustrating that you know you can have on your bookshelf all of your yeah. films but not your no I do find that quite magical um, it takes a certain amount of acceptance as well you know um, but also actor you know I mean theatre is an actor's um, medium I think primarily um, uh, whereas film is, is more of a director's medium and what about audiences in all of this? Is there a difference in what you expect an audience to do with a piece of theatre or a piece of film? Are they going to engage with it differently? Is there a different level of involvement? Yeah, I think there is. And I think um, 
I remember once my dad um, answering the phone to um, a booking um, at the puppet theatre, and um, and the 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 um, lady on the end of the phone asked if there was any audience participation involved in the show and my dad thought for a moment and said yes madam there is there is the participation of the imagination Mm. um which (coughs) i thought was a great line (laughs) i was really impressed by that um uh, and i think that applies to theater you know the 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 the, it's a far more active uh process um engaging in a piece of theater uh film for an audience is often quite passive more and more so as well um and um and i find that problematic in film um uh it's like every square inch of the screen has to be filled in with reality um whereas theater you know w- w- you, there's a contract when you come into the into the theater with the audience which you know basically says none of this is real and you're going to have to suspend your disbelief um uh, and you can push that further and further. I mean, it has been pushed further and further throughout, you know, um, I guess, um, the, the the latter half of the 20th century and into the 21st century. And, and I find that really exciting, that, that um, experience for an audience and their participation. I mean, you certainly see that in Life of Galileo and also A Season in the Congo, which was here a couple of years back. But before we talk about those plays, one thing that I find interesting is as a film director, you can kind of focus the audience's uh, view where where they are looking. You know, if you want an audience to look at your watch, you'll just have a uh, a shot of the watch. Whereas mm. in theatre, because it's just all there, you have no real direct control. If I, as an audience member, choose to look at the lights or choose to look at that bit of costume over there, do you see what I mean? Is that yeah? But I think I th- I, I think you do have control in theatre as well. I mean, you know, you can focus as focus the you can focus the audience's attention um with the use of sound and light and and the actors can help focus um uh, there's a moment in the life of galileo which as far as i'm concerned is a close up of a pair of hands um uh, it's only a close up of a pair of hands because you know everything goes dark and there's a tiny spotlight lighting these empty hands um to me that's a close-up and i think also that the something happens with an audience's perception i remember with the puppet theater uh the 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 figures were about 18 inches um the marionettes but when audiences saw them um uh backstage or whatever they were very surprised that they were so small they all thought the puppets were much much bigger um, so I think the, the, the mind can focus down into a close-up um, for itself and you can guide an audience to do that. Um, so there are tricks, uh, I suppose. I think it's interesting that you use the term close-up. Do you have the same terminology then when directing a, a piece of theatre and a, and a film? Yeah, I do quite a lot. Um, uh, I don't really, you know, not having been brought up in, in the actor's theatre, as it were, um, I I don't really know the terminology, and so I use cinematic terminology. Um, uh, so I say uh, things like, "At this point, we cut to this scene," um, and um, and I in film I really like hard cuts, um, uh, and uh, rather than dissolves. Um, 
And so in terms of the use of lighting, I'm often wanting something that feels like a hard cut rather than a dissolve. Well, that's great. Do you sometimes use these terms in the rehearsal room yeah. and the actors are like, what? What are you talking about? No, they all kind of understand yeah. what I'm talking about. They all kind of, you know, they get film. So, you know, in a way, I'm trying to express something that's in my head and and often the expression is similar in film as it is in... in um, and, you know, and you can use slow motion in theatre and you can speed up time. You can... You can um, you can use close-ups, you can use cuts, you can use dissolves, you can um, hide things from an audience or reveal them, you know. Um, so so I, I, I enjoy that kind of relationship between the two mediums. And I suppose when I think of your films, I think, for instance, of that six-minute scene in Atonement, that, that um, long-tracking uh, shot, and which is a really incredible piece of uh, film and everything that you sort of encompass in that in that shot which is you know so much action so much going on behind the scenes how do you replicate that in theatre then if you wanted to create that that sense of constant action constant goings on in the background well I really love um, I love what we call in in, in film I'm not sure if it's the same in theatre blocking I think it is the same yeah. in theatre <laughs> um, I, I really love blocking um uh, and I really enjoy the playing with the 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 meeting, the place where where blocking and choreography meet. Um, uh, the movement of figures in space I find um, fascinating, revealing, exciting, um, and both those those elements are, are available in film and 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 theatre. Um, the thing one had on you know, on the beach in Atonement was a thousand extras. Um, and uh, and it would have to be a very, very large piece of community theatre to, to get that many figures on stage. Um, but I think that there's a kind of dance that happens. Um, and, and, I, and I guess that's possible in both forms. Um, the only difference is that with theatre, the spectator is static. Um, whereas in film, the spectator is the camera, and the camera is can move. Um, uh, so it's more sculptural in that sense. And I suppose an interesting marriage between film and theatre as well is um, Anna Karenina, with so much of that uh, shot in in a theatre and incorporating so many sort of theatrical techniques. Mm. Um, were you aware of sort of? acknowledging your your background your heritage when making that film was there a deliberate nod to the little angel yeah to be honest i think there's a deliberate nod to to the little angel in all the films i make um uh you know atonement for instance starts with a doll's house and um and so it starts with this miniature scale um and and briny tallis writing her story um uh looming over these these sort of dolls and, and, and this doll's house um, so I, I've always enjoyed playing with scale then I was I, I, you know I was reading some I was reading a lot of Meyerhold and, and thinking about the theatre a lot and thinking about um, stylization really and thinking about the idea of audience participation in the theatre and, 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 and the lack of it in, the, in film and so um, I wanted to bring some of that to uh a cinematic experience and see how far I could push it. Um, I've always been interested in kind of uh, 
formal experimentation, be it um, you know the playing around with linear time or non-linear time in atonement, and um, uh, all, all this kind of you know theatrical ideas in in Anna Karenina. Um, people back against it a lot in film, though. People want their film to be. Um, to have the illusion of reality in a way that they don't expect it in, in theatre in the same way. Um, Do you find that frustrating? I mean, you, you said earlier... Yeah, that really frustrating. ...that people come to the theatre and they expect to suspend disbelief. Do you want people to have that same expectation in, in film as well, then? I'd love them to. How do um, we create that, achieve that? I don't know. I really I really don't know. I mean, Uncomfy seats. Yeah. I'm, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's funny because I, I think in the West... Um, the whole notion of naturalism in cinema has become so entrenched that if you ever try to do anything sort of stylized or or or, or kind of more um, experimental, but that's a difficult word, <laughs> um, you you come up against real problems in kind of you know in 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 Europe, I think audiences are more open to it there's more of a history of it there's more of a you know they they know who brecht was they 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 know who some of them know who Meyerhold was they understand that that just because something's not necessarily a naturalistic representation it doesn't mean it's not realistic um in the brechtian sense um uh and and i guess i'm talking about kind of um britain america um in particular, there's a there's a there's a, a, a suspicion somehow of anything that is um, that, that possibly cuts the suspension of disbelief. You know, cuts that thread. I mean, the only example I can think of really is "Oh, What a Lovely War" back in the sixties. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and the the French the French um, new wave did quite a lot of experiments with 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 form and. Um, in that sense, and uh, who else, you know, and 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 Kurosawa, in a way, I guess, was was involved in those sort of experiments. Um, it's difficult. It's it's somehow. I don't want to get into politics, but I'll go um, on do. Uh, <laughs> but I think there's something, sort of. I think, real capitalism is a form of the suspension of disbelief. Mm. Um, and anything that um, goes against that form is perceived to possibly be um, socialist or even communist. Um, I wonder whether that's to do with Brecht um, and his political orientation. Um, and so therefore, that kind of questioning of the, of the fourth wall, if you like, um, is, is smells to them of... of Socialism. Um, I'm not sure. So you don't think that we'll have uh, films which do push audiences in that way in the near future? Then you think that Hollywood is kind of trapped, for want of a better word, in that kind of capitalist way of of making film. Yeah, and it's funny as well because they've kind of, you know, every time you get a, a, a rebellion against it. Um, I'm thinking of Cassavetes in particular, and you know he. There was this amazing moment where the art on camera was um, uh, invented, uh, imported to 
uh, America and suddenly there was a very lightweight film camera which meant that people could get the camera on their shoulder and run out into the streets and that was the first time that was the birth of, of Cinema Verite um, uh, and so filmmakers like Cassavetes um, could film real people in um, extraordinary situations but real situations and and um, and there was something quite um, uh, anti-establishment about those films, um, and and about that kind of whole wave of of um, of filmmakers. Uh, and then that style becomes reappropriated by the mainstream, and suddenly um, you know giant blockbusters have got the same style as a Cassavetes film. Um, but their sole object is to make vast amounts of money for multinational corporations who support the studios. Um, so there's a kind of, you know, I think it's very difficult to to rage. <laughs> rage against the machine. machine. Yeah. <laughs> and thinking about the films that you're best known for, films like Pride and Prejudice and Anna Karenina and Atonement, mm. these are all kind of period uh, films as well. They're, they are in a very certain place mm. and certain time. Is that important in your work or is that just coincidental that you want to tell good stories and they just happen to be like this or, or what? Is it something that you, you search out for? It's something I fell into. When I, when I left um, art school and when I was making short films and, and TV, um, I was very determined that I was going to be making gritty, you know, British um, social realist drama. Um, generally you know about the working classes um uh i i you know i'd had a great love of of filmmakers like Paul and pressburger and and so on in my in my uh y- youth um or rather childhood but um uh my teens were all about um alan clark basically he was my hero um and i was going to try and emulate him um, and then I got offered um, Pride and Prejudice and it was uh, such a weird thing you know it wasn't what I was intending at all had you read Pride and Prejudice? no I'd never <laughs> read it that was for you know that wasn't my that, 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 that wasn't tough enough really and I wanted to be tough um, uh, um, and uh, but I needed a job um, and so um, I read the book and and kind of fell in love with it um, and fell in love with the character of Elizabeth Bennet um, and fell in love with the voice of Jane Austen who, when she wrote it, was 21 years old. Um, and that excitement um, of discovering, of hearing a, a, a woman discover her, uh, her talent, um, her genius, um, came, kind of poured off the page for me. And... Um, and I was really thrilled by it. Um, so I went to, to work in title and I said, yeah, I, I, I've got one idea. Um, and that is whoever plays Elizabeth Bennet has to be 18 um, because that's the, the age she was written at. Um, it has to be about young people, you know. Um, and, and they went for it. Um, and so I made that film, um, not expecting it to be um, particularly successful. You know, I... I I was well aware that I was working um, in the shadow of the the, the TV um, series uh, and um, 
and Ang Lee, a director I respect hugely, um, had made um, Sense and Sensibility. and um, uh, But it, it turned out to be a success. Um, and, and what I discovered making that film was that period pieces allowed me a certain freedom, um, allowed me a certain... Um, uh, uh, liberty, really, to invest the stories with with more of my imagination and more of what I wanted to say emotionally. Um, and in a way, I see them as being fairy tales um, uh, because I can't replicate the realities of, you know, Austin Britain, and I can't. I can't really replicate the realities of 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 nineteen forties even. Um, uh, so it's really my interpretation of that time, and and therefore it becomes like a fairy tale, and it's probably closer to the to the puppet shows of the Little Angel. Um, uh, and and I've really enjoyed that that world. Sometimes I kind of feel like I want to make gritty contemporary British drama. I think it's something also that Brecht found. You know, I mean, none of very few of his plays um, were actually set in the period that he was writing them. Um, uh, uh, he also um, enjoyed the the um, the prism of um, history through which to tell his stories. Well, let's talk about Brecht now then, and let's talk about uh, Life of Galileo, because that could also potentially be a period uh, piece. Uh, you've chosen not to. It's kind of got a it's not got a, a place in the time really that you, that it's that it's set. Mm. What was the decision behind behind that? Um, I just wanted the show to be a kind of happening, really. Um, that sounds uh, like my like a dad. Saying, <laughs> I, want it, I want it to be a happening. It's really happening. It's really happening. <laughs> um, uh, but I just wanted, you know, I didn't want any separation between the audience and the and the show. I wanted them to be right there with it. I wanted it to be for them. I wanted, you know, one of the things I loved about doing um, Season in the Congo, and one of the things I love about the young Vic is the 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 the, the amazingly eclectic audience you get in here. You know, um, uh, on the first night of Season in the Congo, I came out of the theatre um, nervous about the reaction. Um, it seemed good, but you never know. Um, and uh, and there was a young sixth form student coming out, um, uh, and he said to his group of friends, "I don't care what colour you are, guy. That shit's important." Um, and I nearly wept um, because those are the people that I'm interested in talking to. I wanted to make a Brecht um, that. Um, that would inspire, might inspire someone who's never been to the theatre, let alone never seen a Brecht play. And I suppose it's um, really timely as well, you know, to appropriate another uh, Brecht title, you know, The Resistible Rise of Donald Trump, you could yeah. say, is, yeah. uh, is happening right now. Yeah. And, you know, with Life of Galileo, uh, examining issues relating to truth, post-truth, news, fake news and all the rest of it, that has kind of fitted into place nicely for this this play at this time. Weird. I mean, that's that's David Lenn. I, I can't take any credit for that at all. David, you know, um, I think it was two, maybe even three, two and a half years ago, 
um, said to me, would you like to do The Life of Galileo? And I said, yes, please. Um, and so um, uh, somehow, whether he knew it was coming or not, <laughs> I don't know. But, so David um, is a soothsayer, that's what you're saying? Well, he's a little bit spooky. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, uh, a little bit witchy. Um, warlock. Um, uh, so, um, so yeah, that's that's down to him. And, and, and in a way, I tried very hard not to make the play... Um, you know, we, we, we didn't rewrite anything to make it more relevant for today uh, today's audience. It was um, uh, the play speaks for itself. And yes, it's true. Um, terrifyingly uh, pertinent for today's um, culture. Trump, but, but, but also, you know, um, the way in which science and experts are being mm. kind of mm. dismissed. I remember... Gove, yeah. Gove who said we've had enough of experts um, yeah. I mean yeah. the stupidity of such a remark <laughs> is just shocking yeah. um, from someone who's supposed to be you know one of our leaders yeah. I mean it's um, I think he was yeah. education secretary at the time yeah. <laughs> 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 but it, do you find that you've got um, more responsibility on your shoulders more oh, to, to to carry this play, bearing in mind how timely it is, or not really, do you feel that because of everything that's happening, because of Brexit, because of Trump, you putting on this play, which is so pertinent, is... Yeah, I did. You, you've got a message there to, to yeah, deliver. I did. I, 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 honestly, I've, I did feel um, uh, a bit more of a burden of responsibility um, than I might have done otherwise. Um, and that's all right. I can handle it. Um, but um, I tried not to not to think about it really and just to to, to try and realise the points that Brecht was trying to make and if that and, and to allow the audience the space to make their own conclusions to draw their own parallels um, I, I think one of the amazing you know people People seem to think that Brecht is incredibly didactic, and um, uh, and one of the things I like about him is that he 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 shows us something, a view of the world, but allows us to make our own um, conclusions. Allows us to 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 see the situation, and then it's up to us to think about how we might resolve it. Um, and I, and I really appreciate that about him. Um, uh, I feel like too much drama and too much issue-based drama these days um, tries to give us all the answers, you know. Um, and in a way that um, is disrespectful to the audience, um, undermines the audience's own intelligence. Um, Brecht was wise enough to say, um, this, is, this was this situation, how can it be different in the future? And the aesthetic and the style of uh, Life of Galileo is, is very Brechtian, but also um, with the audience sitting in the middle there where it's often lying on the floor, being moved out of the way by actors, looking up at these incredible uh, projections. There's this sort of catwalk or gangway which the, which the actors use very close, to the act, uh, very close to the audience. For me, it felt a little bit like being at a a gig or being at some sort of festival and lying on the grass and uh, having a great time and being at a, a happening, to use your word from earlier on. Mm -hmm. um, is that deliberate? Is that sort of an acknowledgement of um, 
your youth or, or yeah. being on the raver scene in the 90s or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, it is. I was talking to someone the other day um, uh, and I said, um, you know, I went to the Chemical Brothers' first London gig uh, in 1991 and they um, looked at me, they're adults, and they looked at me and said, I wasn't born yet. Um, and I was really shocked. Um uh but but i guess you know um reclaiming my uh, hedonistic um uh youth possibly um or just trying to create an atmosphere that 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 uh, that is a place where people can freely exchange ideas where people can relax um so that they're not on kind of on guard um so the actors can relax too, you know. Um, I I wanted the music um, to have a kind of uh, epic quality, and uh, the person I know who does epic best is Tom Rowlands, um, uh, and so I asked him to do the music, and and these elements kind of come together, and then you see them all there with the projections and the music and the people on the floor, and you kind of go, oh, that's like a that's like an old rave um uh but you don't necessarily i didn't necessarily have this idea of i'm going to create a rave you know um <laughs> it just kind of happens in front of you and you see yourself reflected back at you and you kind of go oh that's funny that's that's like that's like my my you know my late teens early 20s that's what that looked like um uh and i bet if you were back then in a rave at five o'clock in the morning, age 21, you would have never guessed that that would have informed your future theatre work at the Young Vic, that experience. Oh, no, I d- <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I don't, not necessarily my, 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 my future theatre work, but I think that that period culturally um, uh, was incredibly important for me anyway. I don't know if it's important for everyone else, but, um, but for me, it was really important. It was an extraordinary time. Um, uh, it was an, ex- you know... Um, youth culture became politicised at that time in a way that I haven't seen it be quite so politicised um, until maybe recently, I, I hope. Um, uh, you know, you'd go to a rave and you'd, you'd, you'd then go and kind of um, go to a poll tax riot or you'd go and, you know... Or um, the other way around. Or, or the other way around, you know. In fact, the poll tax, you know, marches, riots, um, would then become... Uh, raves and and sounds you know, great. There was, it was great. It was fab. You know, there, there was there was a lot of protest happening, and we felt like we were reinventing uh, youth culture. There was no there was no separation between different forms of electronic music. Really, it was all dance music, and um, and and so you know, and later it became oh, well, that's progressive house and that's, you know, trance and that's um, grime and that's, you know. But but in those days, it was just um, get in a field, get some loud electronics, take some mind-altering substances and dance. And and it was kind of quite, you know... Sounds an exciting time. Sort it of was. These, these years in the run-up to New Labour, you yeah. know, when things seemed to be going well you know and, and yeah. britain was cool again yeah and that must have it was. helped shape you yeah it, it was and you did and we, we did feel like we could change things in those days you know which i don't feel quite so much now i mean the the, the new labor um 
97 election felt like the culmination of of a lot of hard partying <laughs> but you know it did. And, and, the, and and also i mean the the drugs were different as well the drugs um uh you know i don't i don't do drugs anymore um i don't even drink but um uh and i wouldn't you know any young listeners be careful <laughs> out there um but but ecstasy was quite an extraordinary um discovery at the time because it was a drug that created a sense of the loss of self um uh whereby you were um somehow joined in a collective experience with other people um uh and it wasn't about getting laid and it wasn't about ego and it wasn't about you know you would all be um swept up in some kind of giant collective experience that was quite um extraordinary and full of love as well yeah yeah and it was you know and you'd get kind of you know football hooligans you know hugging each other from different teams or you know it was it was kind of um, quite socialist as drugs go isn't it yeah, really, and it and it didn't have that kind of terrifying element of LSD that LSD had, or you know, it was it was um yeah, it was kind of it's groovy. <laughs> there you go, groovy, groovy um, happening. Going uh, groovy happening sounds my, that's my favourite type of happening, mm-hmm. Joe. Um, going back to Tom uh, Rowlands then, and uh, from the Chemical Brothers, and having him as part of your creative team, mm. what do you sort of search for when when bringing a creative team together? Um people with really brilliant imaginations in their given discipline um uh and so um uh i i I look for great dramatic imaginations in actors i look for great visual and spatial imaginations from designers and for, for for composers i look for great musical imaginations and and sensitivity and a sympathy and uh and uh openness and um i don't want you know flashy egos around and uh, um uh, or 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 kind of defensiveness um and openness um uh yeah that kind of stuff very good and Joe, before I let you go, I must uh, ask you about um, one of my favourite uh, actors oh. uh, who I spied in the audience a couple of nights back, Cathy uh, Burke, oh, okay. um, who I know that you're a, a, a friend of. Yeah. And uh, you were, this, this anecdote's already out in the open, so I hope it's fine to, to retell. Yeah, no, Cathy, I mean, Cathy was at Anna Shears. Okay. So yeah. that's how I knew yeah. her, this acting club yeah. that I used to go to. Um, so Cathy was there. A lot of, you know, great London actors went there. Um uh and um and we all i think maybe we all got taken as a job lot um but we all got hired on Hugh Hudson's film Revolution with Al Pacino and um and uh, Natasha Kinski and Donald Sutherland um and so we all went up to um Norfolk uh, which was standing in for um uh, 18th century New York um, and uh, and there was a lot of hanging around um, and I got quite um, bored and homesick um, and I'd been watching Cathy, I'd been ad- admiring her for, for some time she used to do some stand up at Anna Shears and stuff 
Um, and I wanted to be her friend because I thought she was the coolest thing ever. Um, she was 19, I was 14. Um, and uh, and I was getting a little bit picked on by some of the other kids. Um, uh, so um, I went and knocked on the caravan door, her caravan door. Um, and she opened the door and said, uh, what do you want? I went, hi, Kathy, can I come in, please? And she said, um, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> so... <laughs> I went in and sat on the bed and um, she said, what's the matter? I said, well, um, the, other, uh, the other kids, Kathy, um, they keep on calling me Donut. And she said, well, do you eat a lot of donuts? And I said, yeah, well, yeah I like a donut. And she said, well, try not eating so many fucking donuts then, you donut. <laughs> and, um, and that was the beginning of a lifelong friendship. Um that that has lasted um, uh, all the way till now. Yeah. Fantastic. But she, I mean, she, when I was, you know, when I was in my late teens, she was like the queen bee. You know, um, she still is the queen. But um, but there was a pub called the Old Red Lion that everyone used to drink at, and and Kathy was the queen of the pub. Um, and um, and there would be lock-ins there, you know, and and Kathy. Um, Remember the best party I've probably ever been to was the night that Kathy won the Palm Door for um, Nil by Mouth, uh, or the party to celebrate the, the Palm Door, and um, and she um, and then when I was making short films, um, uh, she I used to give Kathy a VHS of the short films, um, and it wasn't until later that I discovered that Kathy had watched them and then passed them on to a producer at the BBC. Um, and so, you know, some years uh, down the line, I get a call from this producer saying, would I like to come and meet her? Um, and so I didn't know, you know, why or how. Um, I was living, you know, on the on the dole um, and a housing co-op in King's Cross and um, and and went and met Cathy, uh, I mean, when, sorry, went and met this woman, uh, Catherine Waring, she was called. Um, and uh, and she gave me my first job, uh, which is a four-part drama for uh, BBC Two. Um, so that's so I kind of owe it all to Cathy, really. So the secret of making it is be friends with Cathy Burke. The secret of making it is keep working, really, and get your work out there as well. You know, I mean, Cathy wasn't the only person I was giving VHSs to. There was, you know, that. Uh, I was I was sending them everywhere um, uh, and to anyone. Um, so are you a workaholic then, Joe? Oh yeah, 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 very much so. I try, you know, not to be, but um, but I get um, very um, irritable and and um, uh, anxious if I'm not working. So do you find it difficult to switch off? Yeah. So you know that Life of Galileo is on this week. That's always going to be in your head whilst you're cooking a dinner or looking after your kids or anything no, like that. No, it's more like Galileo's on. What am I going to do now? Quickly. Oh, okay. What's the next job? Where am I? Where am I? Where are my energies going now? You know. And what do you try to do to switch off? Um. Go to groovy no. happenings. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I mean, that's the terrifying thing. I don't really. I I, I listen to music a lot. And I hang out with my kids. Um, that you know, they 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 switch off the 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 um, anxiety. Uh, but but yeah, I don't I don't you know I don't have any hobbies. 
<laughs> well, Joe, uh, thank you so much for coming in this afternoon to chat to us and uh, all the best with all your future groovy happenings. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. <laughs>